Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In late August 1825, a sloop sailed down the Delaware Bay from the port of Philadelphia, bound for the Milford River. Changed in its hold were five young African-American boys, the eldest of whom was about 15. They were being taken into slavery, kidnapped from the streets of Philadelphia, destined for the lower Mississippi River four months later. The story is emblematic of what my guest Richard Bell calls the reverse underground railroad, the network of criminals who kidnap free African-Americans in the North and move them South into the insatiable maw of the slave economy. Unlike so many others, however, four of the kidnapped boys returned to the North to tell their story. How they were taken and how they returned is the subject of Richard Bell's stolen five free boys kidnapped into slavery and their astonishing odyssey home. Richard Bell is Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland College Park. He has previously written about suicide in the early American Republic and co-edited another volume on incarceration in early America. Richard Bell, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, Jane Kamensky says in a blurb on the front of the book that this is reminiscent of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and she's not wrong. it reminds me of the 19th century definition of romance, which is a sort of a narrative which involves gothic horror, innocent children, uh, darkness, secrecy, improbable events, providential rescues. I mean, it's, that's all here. Uh, sometimes it's as if it's a plot that Dickens might have conceived of had he lived for another five uh, or ten years um, based on narratives like these. So, uh what I really admire about the book, and we'll get to that sort of at the end of our, our time, is how you manage to combine a really crackling narrative and story with uh, context and uh, historical argument. And uh, in the interest of actually preserving the sort of um, suspense of the book, I want to focus in our conversation on that context and on that uh, argument. So let's begin with talking about the state of slavery in 1825 America. Uh, first of all, slavery in the North. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot to talk about here, obviously. The context really does matter to explain what happened to these boys and why and how. Um, and slavery in the North is a big part of that. Um, as your listeners may know, slavery was a fact of life in the American colonies uh, across the North before the Revolution. There was slavery in Massachusetts, slavery in Rhode Island, slavery in Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, everywhere else. Uh, it's hard to think of a colony that slavery was not woven into the economic fabric before the revolution. But in the decades after the revolution, that slowly began to change uh, for lots of reasons, Uh, some of them economic, that uh, slavery made less sense after the revolution than it did before. Uh, Some of them uh, religious, the uh, Second Great Awakening does produce a crisis of conscience for certain American slaveholders. Uh, And also the political consequences of the American Revolution and all the talk of rights uh, and uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and men being created equal, and so on and so forth. All of these factors combine in the North, at least, to uh, begin a slow process of uh, 
destruction of slavery in the North. So that by the 1820s, when the uh, when this book stolen is set, slavery is on its last legs or 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 dead in most places in the North. Uh, New Jersey is an exception, which we might discuss, but um, in Pennsylvania, where this story is set. Uh, Pennsylvania is by and large a free state. Philadelphia is uh, a free city. And it's home to what by the 1820s is one of the largest and most dynamic free black populations uh, in the United States. Uh, The free black population of Philadelphia tops about 12,000 people in 1825. Uh, and some of those people are freeborn. Some of those people have been granted or given or bought their freedom in the course of their lives. And others are runaways from slavery in other states who have come to the city of brotherly love seeking uh, sanctuary. Now, some people, um, well, not as many as probably there should be, will know of, of certain personalities uh, at, of the elite of the African-American community in Philadelphia. Um there's Richard Allen, the founder of African Methodist Episcopal Church. I don't know if he's still alive in 1825, but if he isn't, he's just uh, his memory is still very strong. And there's certainly James Fortin, who's the great uh, entrepreneur, sailor, and philanthropist of, of African American Philadelphia. But what do our free African Americans able to do in Philadelphia to make ends meet? So, uh, yes, being free in a city like Philadelphia, being free and black uh, is is a mixed uh, blessing. But as you pointed out in your question, uh, there's a lot of reasons why free black people do gather in such large numbers uh, in Philadelphia by the 1820s. Uh, that has to do with the legacy of Richard Allen, the legacy of James Fortin and other people uh, sometimes referred to as the black founders, uh, the founders of free African-American institutions in the newly United States in the decades after the revolution. So we're talking about a city which has black churches uh, led by Mother Bethel, the congregation that Richard Allen uh, founded uh, around the turn of the century. There are free black mutual aid uh, societies uh, where people band together formally to help each other. Um, again, Richard Allen played a role in establishing some of those. Uh, there are significant um, enclaves and communities where large numbers of free black people uh, live. Um, some people might see them as ghettos, but they're also enclaves of people who uh, are like-minded and come from similar backgrounds and share similar experiences. Um, so this is a community by and large trying to uh, gather steam and help e- help each other, uh, co- a community committed to racial uh, uplift, uh, to achieving middle-class uh, prosperity, to trying to claim the rights of citizenship. Though, to be clear, all of those things remain a struggle and an uphill battle. Right. So the if you're, um, there, there are some educated African-Americans in Philadelphia. In fact, one of these boys turns out to have had some of that education. But if you're an educated uh, male, uh, say that you're a, a formerly enslaved, you're in Philadelphia, you can't read, write, or do sums. What are your options as a laborer? Yeah, great question, important question. So for all this legal liberty that I've just outlined and all the efforts, um, considerable efforts, the members of the free black community engage in to raise themselves up and protect themselves. Uh, Philadelphia is still a very marginal place to be free and black. Uh, A great example is the labor market, as you suggested in your question, uh, Al. Um, This is a labor market which is deeply racially divided, uh, segregated. 
racial discrimination in the labor market by white employers is measurable and um, epidemic and ubiquitous. Um, we know from various studies conducted at the time um, that free black people were excluded from about 75% of skilled trades um, in Philadelphia in the 1820s. And the same was true in other northern or mid-Atlantic cities like Baltimore and uh, New York. So uh, there was a sense that black people were taking white people's jobs or were competing rather too fiercely for these economic uh, opportunities. Uh, and um, Caucasians, I think, circled the wagons uh, in this case and excluded free black Americans in the labor market for a good from a good many opportunities. So in practice, what that means is um, that mm -hmm. black women are confined to domestic work, laundresses, etc., um, working in other people's homes, doing cooking, cleaning, and washing, if they can get that work at all. Uh, free black men have even narrower opportunities um, if they can get a job at all, it's likely to be in a brickworks, uh, in a lumberyard, as a longshoreman, or as a dock worker, or as a sailor forced to actually leave Philadelphia for weeks and months at a time um, on board various ocean-going vessels plowing up and down the East Coast, um, sometimes delivering goods to the north, sometimes delivering goods to the south, or collecting cash crops from the south. And that was dangerous work, not just because you're on a ship, but because every time those ships stop in southern ports, uh, if you make the mistake of getting off the ship while you are free and black, you can find that freedom suddenly uh, evaporates and you can be arrested for setting foot in the wrong state as a free black person. So economically speaking, opportunities are deeply uh, circumscribed. And the same is true uh, in the housing market uh, as well. Um, to be free and black in Philadelphia is a decidedly mixed blessing. Let's talk about what boys did. Um, we haven't talked about that yet, I don't think. Um, so in fact, uh, if you're a 10 year old boy that shows up and a couple of these kids um, are what, 10, 12, they show up on the streets of Philadelphia, what can they possibly do? So that's right. So the five boys at the heart of this book stolen, which to be clear is a true story. Um, these are um, boys whose parents would be happiest if they were in school. Uh, but there are too few places in too few schools for free black children. So in fact, only one of these boys has had any significant education by the time he's kidnapped away by a fearsome gang of human traffickers in August 1825. That child's name is Cornelius Sinclair, and he's 10 years old on the day his life changes forever. Um, only one other of the four boys has had any schooling at all, um, but dropped out pretty quick. Um, Several of the other boys uh, are engaged in the labor market as chimney sweeps. Uh, chimney sweeping, um, unlike the mythological portrayals in Mary Poppins, the Disney film, um, is dirty, dangerous, and deadly work. It's work so unpleasant, disgusting, and uh, bad for your health that most white uh, Americans in the 1820s refused to do it. And so it's work for free black people, uh, particularly free black children, who, of course, are smaller and nimbler than adults and can go up these small spaces. Um, they're known as lily whites. And this is a mocking term used by um, uh, white people to refer to very dirty, covered in soot African-American children who, of course, look anything uh, but white. So two of the five children at the heart of my book stolen um, are chimney sweeps. Uh, one is 14, 15 years old. His name is Joe. Uh, and the other is uh, Alex, uh, who is eight, Alex Manlove. Um, there's uh, one other boy I should mention here, because his status is a bit unusual compared to the four others. Um, yeah. The four others are um, freeborn, uh, free black Philadelphians, 
uh, born to free parents. But the fifth, his name is Sam, Sam Scomp, and he is a runaway slave. And he has been in Philadelphia uh, looking for work like this um, for only seven days on the day he meets a stranger who will kidnap him and change his life forever. He's a runaway slave from a place your listeners may not be expecting, uh, not from Virginia or Maryland or even Delaware, three slave states that touch um, Pennsylvania, but actually from a fourth slave state that touches Pennsylvania, which is New Jersey, which is to the east and to the north of um, Philadelphia. Uh, Sam grew up on a plantation in Hunterdon County uh, in West Jersey and uh, was transferred between masters and runaways, runs away from slavery in August 1825 because he believes his master in New Jersey is about to sell him south uh, out of state. So he runs to Philadelphia uh, to gain freedom um, and to seek the shelter and refuge that um, being among the nation's largest free black community might uh, offer him, but he knows no one when he gets there. Uh, he struggles for food. He struggles for a place to sleep. We, we, we think he sleeps rough for those first seven days he's there. We know he's hungry. We know he's looking for odd jobs, uh, anything to get enough money, a few pennies to uh, buy some buns for breakfast, to get a full meal in his stomach. And so one day, when a stranger comes up to him and says, I do have a job for you. I see you look hungry. I see you're looking for work. You look strong. Um, would you come down this way and help me unload some boxes of crates, uh, excuse me, boxes and crates of um, watermelons and peaches from a sloop, which is just down by the Navy Yard? Um, hungry Sam Scomp, 15 years old, uh, jumps at the chance to make 25 cents for a couple of hours work. 25 cents is a decent amount of money in 1825, certainly enough for a few meals. Uh, and he voluntarily walks out of town with this uh, stranger who says his name is John Smith, a very generic, forgettable alias. Uh, he walks voluntarily aboard this small ship, uh, looking for the peaches and crates of watermelons to unload and earn his money. He finds that those crates are not there and that he's been tricked duped, decoyed, lured away by a member uh, of the uh, most successful uh, gang of kidnappers and human traffickers in American history. So this uh, John Smith um, is the grifter who's working for uh, a gang, and we'll get to them in a second, but it's part of a larger network that you call the Reverse Underground Railroad. Um, did you coin that term? So I did not coin that term. You can Google that phrase and find that it has a history on the internet. I think it has its own Wikipedia page, by the way, hmm. uh, which doesn't cite my work. Um, so this term yeah. pre-exists me, but uh, I'm certainly one of uh, only a few academics uh, and historians using this term in print uh, at the moment. And I think this term, for all its uh, faults, for all the ways it flattens, uh, two very distinct phenomenon is actually a useful comparative tool. And it makes us think about what the kidnapping and human trafficking network that I call the reverse underground railroad uh, does have in common with a very different network that many of us are more familiar with the underground mm -hmm. railroad, the good one, the famous one, the Harriet Tubman one. Mm -hmm. And do, do you think more people made it on the reverse underground railroad were taken into the South than came out on the underground railroad? I mean, this so is really hard, really hard to answer. I know that. Yeah, no, no, it's an important question, though, right, Al? So uh, 
I, my research, and again, the research for Stolen, which is focused on one particular kidnapping, also took me uh, into six years of research into the larger phenomenon of kidnapping and human trafficking of free black people into slavery. Uh, that research shows me convincingly that the scale of this phenomenon, the sheer number of free black adults and children most especially kidnapped out of freedom uh, and sold into slavery was enormous in the uh, first four or five decades uh, of the 19th uh, century. Uh, all my sources, if we look at them together um, and use good judgment, point to a forced migration into slavery uh, that should be measured in the tens of thousands uh, over 40, 50 years. That's a monstrous figure. Uh, but it's a figure roughly equivalent in magnitude to what we know about the number of riders on the underground uh, railroad, the good one, the famous one, the Harriet Tubman one. Um, and to be clear, numbers have to be slightly vague here. We talk about the magnitude, the order, um, thousands or hundreds, or in this case, tens of thousands, because historians, of course, do not have accurate statistics on how many people exited slavery uh, via the Underground Railroad. And uh, I certainly do not have accurate statistics uh, as to how many people were sucked into slavery via the reverse Underground Railroad. There are lots of different types of sources which tell us something about the scale of that. But there's no master ledger, no master census somewhere that enumerates accurately um, all this. So we have to use all the sources we can, uh, put them together, and use some, I think, informed, historically grounded judgment uh, to uh, offer um, best guesses about the likely magnitude. And in both cases, the numbers are enormous. Uh, historians who work on no, the, the Underground Railroad uh, uh, estimate that the numbers of people who escaped slavery is somewhere between 10,000 and 60,000. And you'll notice that that's a large number. But it's also yeah. a massive range. And the same is true for what we think about the scale of the reverse Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. um, the existence of this reverse Underground Railroad uh, indicates something is happening in slavery in the South in 1825. Now, part of this is the ending of the uh, slave imports uh, under the Constitution uh, in, in what, 1807, 1808? 1808, yes. Uh, 1808, the... Uh, Imports are uh, ended, and you know, I, I, certainly by 1830, you have this curious fact that U.S. Navy ships are enforcing the end of slave, of the slave trade, while at the same time they're representing basically a slave, a slave-owning republic. Um, but what else is happening in the South besides this, uh, the end of the slave trade, to uh, nurture and create this network of uh, human trafficking? That's right. So there are three historical contexts which are important here. The first we've already discussed, which is the slow uh, demise of slavery in the North, which means that the legal status of slavery in northern states is different than the legal status of slavery in the South um, by the 19th century. The second context is the one you just mentioned, which is that after 1808, um, Congress outlaws further American participation in transatlantic slave trading. Um, so on paper, at least, it becomes illegal 
to bring in uh, um, black people for the purposes of enslaving them from Africa or from the Caribbean. And that shuts off one obvious source of supply of future slaves coming into the United States, though smuggling continues. Um, and the third context, which I think you alluded to in your question, Al, is the, uh, the territory of the American South is growing rapidly in the early 19th century. We can think about the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, um, doubling the size of the United States almost overnight. We could think about the um, Adams-Adonis Treaty, which uh, brings Florida into the Union in 1819. We could think about all the different Indian removal schemes, which clear Native Americans from valuable agricultural land in what, uh, by the standards of the day, is considered the Southwest, the area west of Georgia and uh, east of Louisiana. So there's a massive... Uh, migration of American, of white American settlers into places like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, uh, and so on, uh, over the first two, three decades of the 19th century. And many of those people have gone to this new region um, because land is cheaper, and because they have heard that if they can invest in sugar or cotton, that they can make their fortune. And so mm. many, many try. They quickly decide that um, hacking sugarcane and picking cotton is slave work, uh, not work for white people. And so where do they get enslaved people from? Um, with international sources now outlawed, um, the main source is um, mid-Atlantic states like Virginia and Maryland, where some planters there are willing to sell some of their enslaved labor force to legal interstate slave traders uh, who will buy them, uh, who will either march them or sail them around the country to this new cotton kingdom, this uh, Gulf Coast region, um, and then will sell them, resell them at jacked up prices to planters setting up in the uh, cotton kingdom. And we estimate that between about 1790 and 1860, more than one million enslaved Americans are forcibly relocated from the upper south down into this new lower south cotton kingdom region that's a massive number a million uh, black yeah. people traded across the country right. and yet yeah, still i'm sorry i'm sorry to, to just finish no, the sorry. Point. It's, it, it, yeah yeah go ahead yeah, just to finish the point and yet still uh, planters down there in the deep south want still more and uh, the more they're willing to pay the more tempting and profitable it becomes for bad actors, and it's hard to speak of good actors when we're talking about slavery, but for bad actors uh, sufficiently cold-blooded enough to try to kidnap free people from the northern states and pass them off as legally purchased slaves and sell them in this new southwestern slave market as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 1825 is a very useful watershed year in so many ways. Um, it's... Uh, it's the moment in the creation of what uh, Southern historians think of as the old Southwest, um, as opposed to the old Northwest Territory, the old mm -hmm. Southwest, um, that region that you're describing from Louisiana, Arkansas, all the way to, even to Georgia, in, in many ways, opening up in 1825. Um, this is before the best known of the Indian removals, the Cherokee removals, but these sorts of removals have been going on for some time uh, since the wars with the Creeks uh, uh, between Tennessee and the Creek Indians. Um, so Georgia is continually removing or taking land from the natives. Um, so 1825, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a watershed a moment in the colonization of the Southwest. And you can see that, by the way, in later on in the book. It's extraordinary. I think there, there are four white men that are involved with the fate of these uh, 
of these children, of these kids. And I think all four of them are from New Jersey and Pennsylvania originally. I think at least three of them it, are. Yeah, the other one is from Tennessee. At least Tennessee. three of them are. Yeah, I'm from Tennessee, right. And, and three of them, and I, I know the names. Um, one of them is the, is the son of someone who grew up uh, near where I was, uh, where I lived as a, as a, as a child in uh, southern New Jersey. Um, so it's, uh, th these are, these people are all fresh to that land. We shouldn't think of them. They are in many ways, the whites are as recent arrivals as the enslaved, uh, people that are being brought down. Uh, second, I mean, to emphasize the size of the internal slave trade, it's, I think it's one of the most un unknown things about American slavery. Um, everyone thinks about the middle passage quite rightly. Um, but they do not realize that from 18, that following, um, the colonization of the Southwest, um, the massive numbers that you just mentioned of, of people that are being brought in, in long lines of, of chained or unchained people uh, who pursue the Western frontier all the way into the Brazos River Valley of Texas as America expands West. Oh, the other thing about 1825, it's after the Missouri Compromise. Mm. So it's for certain now that Southerners can expand along the line that uh, uh, that uh, latitudinal line uh, further and further west with their slaves, with their enslaved people. Um, so all these reasons make 1825 a really interesting year in um, the history of slavery. Yeah, and two other things to add to that excellent summation, uh, Al. Uh, one is that you mentioned the comparison to the Middle Passage, the transatlantic yeah. voyage from Africa to America, um, or to the Americus, I should say. Um, my uh, former colleague who recently passed on, Ira Berlin, here at the University of Maryland, we miss him greatly, um, he referred hmm. to this domestic migration of a million people from the Upper South slave states to the Lower South slave states as a second Middle Passage. And in terms of numbers, um, it was twice the size of the number of migrants who yeah. had come from Africa to the what, the colonies that became the United States. It's a monstrous yes, exa number. exactly, exactly. And what that looks like out on the on on the roads is palpable. Uh, while some of these one million migrants would travel by ship against their will from places like uh, the D.C. area where I live uh, to places like New Orleans. Um, the great majority of those um, uh, of that forced migration was overland and on foot, um, and so when European travelers uh, came to America, to the United States, to kick the tires of this new country in the 1810s, 1820s, and 1830s, and they would typically come for six months, a year, two years, and go absolutely everywhere. They would often ride in um, wagons and carriages and stagecoaches on these southern roads from the upper south to the lower south as they were making their own way to New Orleans to check it out. Um, and they would see um, caravan after caravan of walking uh, black men, women, and children, uh, chain gangs uh, on the move. Coffles is the technical term. Coffle is the Arabic mm -hmm. word for caravan. They would see these processions of chained black people legally bought and sold slaves, making this slow step-by-step -step journey, which is a journey, by the way, of about two million steps from somewhere like Northern Virginia to somewhere like um, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. And these European observers um, marveled um, at what they were seeing out of their stagecoach windows, this exodus of black humanity from one state, one slave state to another. Um, and they described these coffles in heart-wrenching, heart-rending detail sometimes. Uh, they talked about the sounds, the groans that came from these men, women, and children as they marched by their window. 
uh, and they talked about uh, how these convoys of uh, black people chained together um, had the look of funeral processions as they moved. Now, these massive, this massive um, forced migration is occurring because of powerful economic incentives, and it's those same economic incentives that uh, lure this network of human traffickers to bring these five boys and, and, and tens of thousands of others uh, across the Mason-Dixon line and into slavery from freedom. Um, are, do you have other examples of people besides this particular gang that we're going to discuss right now? Um, are there other examples that you sort of have in your on, on your hard drive of such uh, of human uh, human traffickers? Yeah, you specimens? should see, you should see my hard drive, Al. My my hard drive is uh, full of filled with um, human trafficking. Very, that's right. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, you know, six years in the archives. Um, when I began this work in 2011, um, I was only fully aware of one victim of this phenomenon of kidnapping and human trafficking of free black people into slavery, and that was Solomon Northup. Um, mm -hmm. He may be familiar to all of your listeners because he wrote a memoir about his experience being kidnapped and trafficked into slavery, his 12 years trying to escape that slavery, uh, and that memoir is called 12 Years a Slave. Um, and if I had given his case much thought in 2011, I think I would have told you um, that probably cases like his were isolated, rare, uncommon, a sort of glitch in the system. Um, but in fact, the phenomenon of, of kidnapping and human trafficking was incredibly common, something that my hard drive uh, can now attest. I found, as I've said, hundreds and thousands of cases of kidnapped free adults like Northup and many, many more cases of kidnapped children uh, sucked into this system. Mm -hmm. Very rarely do any of them ever escape and live to tell their tale. One of the things that's unusual and extraordinary about Northup is that he did eventually, after 12 years in captivity, um, escape and did write about it. And his uh, memoir, which was turned into a movie in 2013, is uh, an extraordinary document, extraordinary insight into what is largely otherwise a black box in which we do not know what happens. Um, but it turns out that in the course of doing research for this new book, um, Stolen, that uh, in some ways his memoir and the movie offer um, partial and slightly distorted views of what was typical. Because it turns out that the kidnapping of... Um, uh, adults, and Northup was in his 30s, by the way, and literate and highly skilled, he was a professional musician, was somewhat unusual uh, in the reverse Underground Railroad. And the kidnapping of free black children was actually vastly more um, common. Uh, it was unusual to kidnap people who were highly literate uh, and Traders and kidnappers would prefer to prey on people who lacked the sort of skills uh, to be able to write letters and try to alert authorities um, once they'd been um, held captive and trafficked away. Um, in Solomon Northup's story, he tells us that he was trafficked um, out of Washington, D.C. on a ship that went down the East Coast around Florida and towards New Orleans, where he sold in a big... Um, slave emporium, an auction uh, emporium, uh, to a sugarcane planter. But uh, vastly more common was for 
uh, free black adults and children kidnapped into slavery to be made to march, as I've said, across the country to disguise them as legally traded slave coffles and make that same horrendous two million step um, journey. It was vastly more common to be sold off along the way than to ever actually reach New Orleans and be sold off in a showroom. Um, mm-hmm. Most kids and adults were sold off in the interior of Alabama, in the interior of Mississippi, often in small groups of ones and twos to hard up planters who wanted to buy more slaves but couldn't afford big city New Orleans slave prices. And all the things I've just described as being vastly more typical are actually exactly what happens to Sam Scomp, Cornelius Sinclair, Joe, Alex, and Enos, uh, the five boys at the heart of my, my new book. So let's talk about how they are brought into the the legal internal slave trade, because they go through this liminal space. They're on the sloop. Uh, it comes down the Delaware Bay. It goes up into Milford, Delaware. The, I think it's the Milford River. Um, they're unloaded, and they're taken to the, the Mason-Dixon line itself, the border between uh, Maryland and Delaware. As I said in, in my notes to you, this is fascinating to me. I know this from the 17th and 18th century. Uh, this border is where lots of uh, free uh, blacks in the 17th century uh, moved across to avoid the increasingly um, codified slave laws of Virginia. Uh, there are remnants of earlier Native American uh, tribes in this area that sort of managed to lurk into the 20th, live there in plain sight into the 20th century. And in 1825, there is a gang of rapacious human traffickers led by a woman. That's right, Al. Yes. So the Delmarva Peninsula, which is home to most of Delaware and to slivers of Virginia and Maryland, as you know, um, is pretty close to Philadelphia. Um, It's really only, uh, what, 100 miles or so um, uh, to Philadelphia to the north. So when the boys are um, snatched from the streets of Philadelphia in August 1825 um, and put on this sloop, the sloop's first port of call is actually the interior of the Delmarva Peninsula. Uh, The gang that kidnaps them has two warehouses or safe houses um, out on the dividing line between uh, Delaware Sussex County and uh, Maryland, um, uh, Dorchester County. They own two properties there. They're pretty secluded. They're pretty isolated. The population is relatively low in this part of the peninsula. Um, And their common practice, and to be clear, this gang has done this before and will do it again. Their common practice is to warehouse their captives uh, for a few days, sometimes a few weeks, until they can figure out whether they can sell them directly to a legal slave trader who won't ask too many questions, who will then smuggle them into the legal supply chain, or whether in some cases the gang will have to actually have to mark march their captives across the country and sell them directly to buyers in the Deep South themselves. Uh, and this gang has been active um, and warehoused and headquartered on the eastern shore of Maryland and in Sussex County, Delaware, for uh, what, for almost two decades by the time hmm. these five boys are kidnapped in 1825. Um, the first instance, the first recorded instance of a kidnapping perpetrated by a member of this gang is actually 1808, which is the year that the uh, international slave trade is outlawed into the United States. So the gang's been around a long time and is now pretty um, professionalized, to use a horrible word to describe human trafficking. They're good at their jobs, um, 
And they've been at it for a while. They've kidnapped probably dozens and dozens of uh, free black adults and children, either from the peninsula itself, where there is a small and terrified free black population, uh, or from Philadelphia, or from Baltimore, where there's also a large free black population. Um, but they choose to keep their warehouses, their safe houses on this peninsula because, um, as you pointed out in your remarks, both Delaware and Maryland are slave states at this time when Pennsylvania mm. isn't. Um, both Delaware and Maryland, um, out on the eastern shore of Maryland uh, anyway, are filled with um, agricultural plantations, which are either tobacco or more likely by this time wheat and cereal plantations. People who are not slave owners uh, probably depend in some way on slaves and slave owners for their livelihoods. Local doctors make their money uh, in this slave economy, local bankers, local lawyers, everyone is connected somehow to the slave economy of the eastern shore of Maryland and Delaware. So uh, if you're looking for a place to uh, warehouse your um, captives, uh, a slave state close to a free state is about as good a bet as uh, any. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a place where Frederick Douglass grew up uh, in yep. Talbot County, uh, where Harriet Tubman uh, grew up yep. as well. Um, both of them later talked about growing up uh, enslaved uh, out there. Uh, and they said it was nothing less than a heart of darkness, that with no anti-slavery group within 100 miles, with very few reliable white allies uh, on the peninsula, with very few Quakers, very few activist Methodists on the peninsula, um, slavery could really do its worst. Um, that's not to say it was equivalent to cotton or sugarcane slavery in the Deep South, but there was a sense that you were in no man's land, that you were at the mercy uh, of this slave economy uh, and white slave owning and slavery adjacent practitioners. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, couldn't get out of there fast enough. Uh, as you know, right. Harriet Tubman spent her life trying to rescue as many people from this particular place as she could. No, it's it's interesting to think that uh, if they this had happened 20 years later, they might, as they were going into Maryland, they would have passed Harriet Tubman coming out. Mm. Um, you know, this is uh, this is a uh, was that significant to you in, in picking this story? That must have been, or was that just an added bonus that this was also the Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass territory that they end up in? So I, I definitely used their sources, and Douglas writes a lot about growing up on the eastern shore yep. of Maryland, which was very useful sort of insider perspective. Um, when you're writing about slavery, you want yeah, and, to disrupt the slave owner's perspective as often as you can, and you don't want to rely solely on slave owner's sources to reconstruct what life is like in a place like that. So having Douglas as an eyewitness observer uh, was uh, very valuable. And I also wanted to complicate the idea um, that that the only path into and out of slavery is out uh, through the mm -hmm. Underground Railroad. Uh, the, these freedom seekers were immensely heroic, and Harriet Tubman deserves all the attention that she gets. But it's not true uh, that slavery only leaked. Uh, slavery <laughs> also grew um, every time um, these uh, cold-hearted men and women who led this gang um, sucked free children and adults into slavery. So for all the successes of the Underground Railroad, this reverse Underground Railroad offsets many of those gains. And you had asked about the kidnappers themselves, Al, in a previous yeah, let's, question. Let's, let's talk about Patty Cannon. Uh, that's, yeah, and I just want, that, yeah, I just want to highlight her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, highlight her, because if, uh, if Harriet Tubman is one of, uh, uh, is a female hero from this part of uh, 
uh, American geography from the Delmarva Peninsula. Then her evil counterpart uh, is a mm-hmm. white woman named Patty Cannon, um, who I'd never heard of till I began this work on this gang and what they did, but whom seems to be relatively well known still on the Eastern Shore. If you go to the Eastern Shore History Museum um, in, I think, Seaford, um, you can find a creepy sort of animatronic statue robot of um, Patty Cannon mm-hmm. rocking on a rocking chair. So in the 1820s, she was in her 50s or 60s, and she'd been at the head of this gang as one of its co-leaders for about a decade since her husband, uh, one of the founders of the gang, had died. Um, And she was arguably responsible um, with her co-leader for zeroing in on free black children as a target of their predations as opposed to adults. And while she never led those raids herself, uh, she was the one in charge of these two safe houses out on the Eastern Shore and the state of Maryland, state of Delaware, excuse me, um, that were the hubs, basically, of this interregional, interstate uh, criminal network. And she was a figure who was well known in her own lifetime. Uh, people on the peninsula um, talked about Patty Cannon in the same way they would talk about a, uh, a bogeyman or about Jack the Ripper. They were terrified um, of her, of what she did, which is kidnap and traffic free black people. Um, they uh, engaged in a lot of rumors um, suggesting she was a violent serial killer, which is probably hyperbole and mythology, but added to her fearsome reputation as someone you never want to cross um, or your life could take a very different turn uh, almost immediately. And after her death, which, by the way, was in some peculiar circumstances I talk about in the book, uh, 10 years after, there was a pamphlet published about her life, which lent heavily into the female Jack the Ripper sort of uh, idea and established her as almost a figure of um, folkloric evil uh, on the eastern uh, shore. I knew nothing of this when I started out on this book, um, and now she's a significant figure in the resulting uh, book stolen. And I have to say that the pamphlet is uh, horrific and sensationalistic and all the rest of it. But the facts are are, are make Madame Defarge, uh, make any sort of evil Charles Dickens character uh, look pretty tame and sort of uh, and, 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 and mild. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, uh, I tend to focus on the uh, the professional work she did as the co-leader of this kidnapping gang. I mean, she is a uh, a white woman who is personally responsible for the kidnapping and human trafficking of dozens of people via her gang uh, over the course of seven, eight years in the 1820s. And the circumstances under which she is eventually arrested uh, are worth uh, recounting here. Um, In 1829, four years after the events in Stolen take place, uh, a tenant farmer uh, who rents some land that she owns digs up um, some bones on her property. Uh, The tenant farmer digs up human remains and is startled and horrified and calls in the authorities or what passes for the authorities on the peninsula at this time. And a murder investigation is launched to figure out who these human remains belong to. And suspicion quickly falls on Paddy Cannon, the owner of the property. Um, and the authority's best guess is that one set of human remains belongs to a rival slave dealer. Uh, and the suspicion is that she has killed her rival. Uh, and the other two sets seem to belong to free black children who went missing years earlier. And the suspicion is that Cannon 
killed them. And on the pamphlet written 10 years later, there is an illustration of Patty Cannon throwing a free black child about five years old into an open fire to burn to death. Um, so there was a lot of discussion at the time that they'd actually discovered someone who was genuinely a murderer, perhaps a serial killer. Um, I tend to think um, those claims are, um, are, are somewhat exaggerated. But the claims as to her um, role in this kidnapping gang are by no means uh, exaggerated. And she's in jail on suspicion of uh, murder in 1829, and she dies in jail before the trial can take place. And people at the time, and certainly the writer of the later pamphlet, um, speculate that she actually committed suicide uh, to avoid the hangman, though we can't be sure of the veracity of that. I'm just just uh, parenthetically, is that is that how you became interested in her at first, because of your first work on suicide? That's actually right, yes. Yeah. So my first book, an <laughs> academic book called We Shall Be No More, Suicide and Self-Government in the Newly United States, um, was a study of suicide between the revolution and the civil war. And when you're working on a topic as dark and distinctive as suicide for as long as I was, about 10 years, um, all of your classmates in graduate school and your junior colleagues, etc., know you're working on this. And whenever they come across a suicide in their own historical research, they will send me one. They will send me a screenshot. They will send me a link to a newspaper from the 1810s or 20s. And one day in 2011, a friend of mine sent me a link to a Georgetown newspaper, Georgetown, Delaware, that is, a Delaware newspaper um, describing the apparent suicide in jail of this woman I'd never heard of, uh, Patty Cannon. And I went down the research rabbit hole. Um, I quickly became suspicious as to whether she'd actually taken her own life or just died from natural causes. Um, but I became convinced that the circumstances of her death were the least important and fascinating <laughs> details of her life. Her life was extraordinary. And, you know, this is a, someone who's not just transgressed moral barriers and legal barriers repeatedly and relentlessly in her life, but who by the standards of the day uh, transcended many gender boundaries as, as well. So there was a lot um, to be fascinated by about this monstrous woman's career. And my original plan for this book was to write a biography of Patty Cannon. Um, but I became increasingly disgusted with myself for uh, focusing so much attention on someone so horrible. And so the resulting book, Stolen, um, actually keeps her in the background and at arm's length and focuses in on the extraordinary and I would argue heroic efforts of these five black children uh, to free themselves and their parents uh, stuck in Philadelphia to do all they can uh, to raise the alarm, to scream bloody murder and to get their boys home. Well, let's um, touch briefly on that. Uh, I don't want to give away the, uh, the, the all of it, um, but they are taken into the internal slave trade network. Uh, they're sailed, they are hauled to the coast of the Chesapeake Bay, uh, they're put on a, another uh, co coastal vessel or taken down to Norfolk, uh, where there is a huge, I mean, we, we should just say that it, Virginia is growing, uh, it's turning to its greatest product in the 19th century, which is, is people, um, and becoming very wealthy up to the Civil War on uh, the internal slave trade. Uh, people and also the corn and wheat with which to feed them is all are all being shipped south from Norfolk, from Alexandria, and from Richmond. And so uh, these uh, children are then uh, put into, well, they, they, you go on, how do they get to where they end up? 
Right. So there, are, as you said, there are things I don't want to say either, because I want um, readers yeah. to go on this journey uh, with me. But what I will say is, yes, these five boys are made to walk. They are they are crossed across the Chesapeake Bay by their captors. Uh, their captors un- are unable to find um, buyers for them in Norfolk who will carry them across the country for resale. So the captors decide to carry them across the country themselves. Uh, and this journey of two million steps takes about four months. Um, and along the way, um, uh, one of the boys uh, is sold in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for $300, a suspiciously low price given that the boy in question could read and literacy usually commanded a premium, uh, a price so low that it strongly suggests to me that the person who bought 10-year-old Cornelius Sinclair knew exactly that he was buying a free person and used that information to get a better deal um, from the person selling him, a kidnapper called Ebenezer Johnson. Um, and the plan is to sell the remaining boys um, to buyers setting up in Mississippi. Um, and that plan, from the perspective of the kidnappers, goes disastrously wrong. And from the perspective of the boys, uh, considerable um, good things uh, happen at an interaction that takes place in Mississippi involving a uh, cotton planter who does not behave the way that most southern cotton planters might be expected to behave. I'm going to be sort of vague about that, but I will say that the things that happen in the second two-thirds of this book, once the boys uh, are taken into the Deep South by their captors, are genuinely astonishing and extraordinary and unusual. And I wrote this book to uh, tell people what happened to them and to explain why um, Mm -hmm. these strange things happen. And the subtitle of the book is Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Uh, Unfortunately, that subtitle is slightly misleading because not all five of the boys do make it. Um, home. This was an acquiescence to my, my publisher um, to frame the book that way. But it is true that there is an Odyssey home, uh, that several of the boys uh, undertake it, uh, and that it is indeed astonishing and unexpected. And while I don't want to say exactly how that happened or why that happened, I will say that what did happen next to these boys once they begin that journey into the Deep South, it will involve um, two murders, it will involve three exhumations of human remains, it will involve um, a a lawsuit, uh, an escape, uh, a recapture, uh, a suicide, uh, a race riot, a seance, to conjure the spirits of the dead, and uh, it will involve the nation's largest manhunt so far. Well, that's that's very nice. That's. Um, can we jump to uh, discuss? Uh, move back to uh, as we're wrapping up here to discuss uh, context and uh, argument. Sure. And I think that in chapter eleven in the epilogue, you make a very strong case for the importance of kidnapping. Uh, as a continual presence and also I I would think of as almost a primer or an initiator, a detonator for abolitionist activity. It's a continuing theme amongst uh, abolitionists, both intellectually but also uh, very practically in the formation of of self-defense groups. Could you explain what those are and uh, and also a little bit more about kidnapping in the through the 1850s up to the Civil War? Yeah, yeah. So I might take a couple of steps back and take a run at sure, your sure. question because there's a lot there. Um, so I do think that this particular case 
case from 1825, which is one of thousands and thousands of similar cases which don't end up quite the same way as this one does, is important. Um, I think, you know, that any story, uh, I think families belong together. I think that's true then. I think that's true now. And so I think that any story where um, free children are separated forcibly from their families is a story worth telling for its own sake. But I also think that this particular story of what happened to Cornelius and Sam and Alex and Enos and Joe matters for lots of other um, reasons. Uh, number one, it reminds us that um, kidnapping and child snatching in particular was remarkably common uh, in this early 19th century period for all the reasons you and I have discussed, um, uh, Al. And also that the legal freedom of uh, African-Americans in northern cities and states was actually achingly fragile in this period. Mm-hmm. It was truly paper thin. Uh, but it's also true, and this gets closer to your question, that this case would have important consequences, that what happened to these five boys uh, would set the table for many things that happen next in American history, um, which uh, we regard as central to the story of slavery and freedom in the United States before the Civil um, war and one of those is that uh, free African African community. I'll start again. Free African American uh, populations, after this case, become uh, more and more comfortable with the use of violence for the purpose of self defense and mutual protection than ever before. They refuse to let these outrages keep happening. Uh, And so we see the rise of what we sometimes call self-defense groups, sometimes called vigilance um, committees. Some of them are black and white. Some of them are blacks only. Some of them are whites only. Uh, But the use of violence in opposition to slavery among northerners um, begins to spike after this case and for good uh, reason. Uh, We even see anti-kidnapping groups form. Uh, There's a group in Boston that forms uh, after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law, which is basically open season for kidnappers, um, which uh, is called the Anti-Manhunting League. And this is a group of black and white Bostonians who meet once a week to practice how to apprehend uh, a kidnapper and kidnap him before he kidnaps anyone else. This is extraordinary stuff. Uh, The anti-slavery story is incredibly dramatic and uh, dynamic. And if I could say one more thing on this, it would be that in the larger anti-slavery campaign, which is a campaign that exists um, in part to convince other Americans to care, to do something, to get involved, to stop being apathetic or indifferent to the plight of the Southern slave, we see anti-slavery writers after 1825 lean into the subject of kidnapping in a way they never have before to draw attention to cases where free black children are sucked into slavery and to say this is an outrage that touches northern states and it's not just uh, southern slavery that southern slavery is poisoning and stealing from the free north um, but also to focus uh white readers' attention on the separation of families and kidnapping has that, uh, you know, has that dynamic, that forced separation uh, at its root. And anti-slavery activists become increasingly skilled about uh, highlighting all the ways that criminal kidnapping and legal slavery separate black families and tear them apart. How did you um, go about researching this book? You've referred to the six years. You've got lots of stories on the hard drive. Um, What was the most useful uh, place that you found or most useful um, set of 
archives or records. Yeah, so uh, you must have used you, you must have used them all the way from Philadelphia to to Mississippi. That's absolutely right, and even further afield. I was in Boston for this book. I was in London for this book. I was in um, Los Angeles for this book, doing research. It was really wherever I could find any bodies of bodies of sources that I thought might be useful. There was a lot of needle in the haystack work doing a project like this, because of course, you know, um, uh, kidnappers and human traffickers don't leave uh, memoirs for us to find. They don't <laughs> leave their business records uh, at the Library of Congress for me to stumble upon. Um, there were two types of sources about this particular case that historians were already familiar with. And that's where I began. Uh, this was, um, one of them was a body of uh, letters, about 25 letters, either to or from the mayor of Philadelphia in this period, a man called Joseph Watson. Um, and he eventually gets involved in this case and writes a lot about it, which is hugely valuable, um, though his handwriting is terrible. Um, <laughs> and another body of sources, much smaller, was a couple of articles about this disappearance um, in one single anti-slavery newspaper in Philadelphia called the African Observer. Um, historians have known about those sources for some time, but on their own, they're too few and far between to sustain a whole book-length reconstruction of this case. So I went looking for other sources everywhere um, I could think of. And for all your listeners who have done historical research, uh, they'll know that there is a lot of failure and wasted effort every time you do that. Um, a lot of needle in the haystack stuff, which produces days of frustration in the archive, days of finding nothing at all um, that's useful, that moves the ball in the archive. But in the course of six years, I think I visited, um, for the book I counted, I think I went to 35 archives in 14 states and the District of Columbia. And I unearthed about 100 new sources about this case, which weren't, weren't widely known. What, what uh, did you uh, have to uh, I'll just highlight? I'll just highlight yeah, three of them, if that's all right, Al. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one would be, I, uh, with, with help from another scholar, I was able to identify the um, handwritten notes of a trial that took place in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that would decide 10-year-old Cornelius's fate forever. Um, I came across uh, a handwritten letter from one of the kidnappers, something I never thought I would find, uh, describing <laughs> what happened and saying that he, of course, had nothing to do with it, which was a lie. Um, and then another source... Where, where did you find that? Where did you find that? That was buried in the microfilm papers of the um, Pennsylvania Abolition Society, which are held um, in manuscript at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in downtown Philly, a wonderful <laughs> place to work, and right next door to the library yes, company, a fabulous place to work. And then the last one, which yes. I think I discovered in the library company next door, was a missing persons ad, um, Al. Uh, and I reproduced this on page eight, and I thought I might read it to your listeners if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so this is a missing persons ad uh, published by Joseph Sinclair, uh, the father of 10-year-old Cornelius, three days after his son's gone missing. And it punches me in the gut every time I see it. So I'm just going to read it quickly because mm -hmm. it's short. Boy lost. The subscriber's son, Cornelius Sinclair, a colored boy about 11 years old, left his friends yesterday. And as he had no cause and had never before absented himself, it is feared he's been seduced away by some evil-minded person. My son is a very dark, mixed-race boy. He's pretty stout-built. He's got thin, long fingers. His eyes are weak. His left eye is smaller than his right. Any person hearing of our son will confer a favor on his afflicted 
parents by giving information to my employer at number 19 South Front Street, Joseph Sinclair. How do you face the, how did you overcome the challenge of combining such effective material, um, uh, affective material like that ad and the, the story of these five boys with uh, writing context and argument? Um, you combine narrative and, and and context and argument beautifully. Um, was that a struggle? Uh, did you map it out on a whiteboard? Uh, bulletin? How did you How did you do this? Um, yeah, it was very it was it was very challenging, as as you said, because I wanted this to be a story. I wanted this to be a narrative. I, I wanted this to foreground uh, these boys' lives and what happened to them and what they did. I wanted this story to have a beginning and a middle and an end. All of which is to say, I wanted people to read this book, Al. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot of historical context and a lot of arguments that uh, uh, us historians want to make about these events. Um, and so, balancing the two is indeed, as you said, a challenge. Um, so the result is what I call an, an embedded narrative, where narrative is in the driving seat, but argument and analysis are embedded in every sentence. Um, and I hope that sometimes readers notice and sometimes readers don't notice when I'm making arguments, but they walk away clear as to what my arguments have been with any luck. And um, I didn't invent this. In fact, I copied uh, how to write like this from many historians. Um, scholars who are masters of this particular genre. This is uh, also known as micro history. And uh, your mm -hmm. listeners may be familiar with some of the masterpieces of, of micro history. One is called The Return of Martin Gare, which was made into a film back in the 80s. The book is by Natalie Zeman Davis, or Robert Danton's The Great Cat Massacre, um, to use two European examples. But in American history, there are lots of good micro histories or embedded narratives. In fact, even a subject like kidnapping, um, um, I can think of two other historians who've worked on um, kidnapping in other contexts uh, than mine, who use the same sorts of analytical and narrative models to great effect. And um, one would be uh, Georgetown University's Adam Rothman, who wrote a great micro history of kidnapping during the Civil War called uh, Beyond Freedom's Reach. And then my colleague here at Maryland in the history department, Michael Ross, wrote about the kidnapping of an Irish baby in Reconstruction New Orleans and used that to shed light on the larger politics of radical reconstruction. And that book is called The Great New Orleans Kidnapping Case. So I read a lot of great books and tried to steal and reverse engineer um, how they went about their business in hopes that hmm. um, some of their skills would rub off on my little book. My guest today has been Richard Bell. He's the author of Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.